The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 155. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Next Generation episode, The Ensigns of Command. Joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. So the Ensigns of Command are like different than the Ensigns of the Life Sciences Department and the Ensigns of the (laughs) Ship Operations Department? Oh, there's an explanation for that. We'll get to that because it doesn't make sense without the explanation. So Father Corey couldn't join us this time, but he'll be back next time. So we'll, we'll, we'll see him then. A couple of notes. Share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow this awesome community of Trekkies that are part of our listening audience. We love to talk with you, to hear from you, and we love to reach more folks. Uh, Help them join us. If you are a Star Trek fan, you might also be a Stargate fan, and you're in luck, because uh, StarQuest, we now have a new Secrets of Stargate podcast, and Father Corey uh, is often on that one, as is a few other folks, Jack and Lisa and Victor. And you'll sometimes probably hear me and Jimmy join on occasion uh, because we love Stargate as well. So uh, check that out, The Secrets of Stargate, sqpn.com slash Stargate, or wherever you find your podcasts. Hail Dorothy. (laughs) And uh, at the end of the episode, be sure to stick around. We've got some great listener feedback that I think is going to engender some really good discussion. But first, we're going to talk about this episode, The Ensigns of Command. It's the Third season, second episode. So as we mentioned, we're jumping back and forth from first season to third season in Next Gen, uh, just so that we have some better episodes to talk about than all the first season ones. And the title is from the poem The Wants of Man by John Quincy Adams, which is interesting. And in the con- in the context of this— He's a famous this, historical person. He is. Uh, President Adams. One of. One of, Yes. The term ensign here means a flag or symbol. It's not a rank, uh, not a military rank. Uh, the uh, I want the seals of power in place, the ensigns of command, charged by the people's unbought grace to rule my native land. Nor crown nor scepter would I ask, but from my country's will, by day, by night, to ply the task, her cup of bliss to fill. Uh, so it's it's about being That's in command. That's fancy talk. It is. It's le- uh, leadership. It is very fancy. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Jimmy, can you give us a quick recap of what this happens in this episode? Sure. The Enterprise comes to a planet that has a lost human colony on it that they weren't expecting to find, and the plot is complicated by the fact this planet belongs to an alien race by treaty. To drive the plot forward, the aliens turn out to be irrational. Also, to drive the plot forward, the humans in the colony turn out to be irrational. (laughs) Data must convince the humans to move, and he eventually does that by destroying their aqueduct. Picard must convince the aliens to give them more time, which he does by treaty maneuvering, uh, using the treaty against them, 
invoking a binding arbitration clause and naming as the arbitrators a race that is currently hibernating, so they're not available. Everything else is basically details. The whole nub of the irrationality comes down to do the aliens colonize the planet in three days and wipe out the humans, or do they wait three weeks and give the humans a chance to evacuate? Because, of course, reasons. The transporters can't work because of weird radiation on the planet. Right. We've got to build up all of these reasons for why the plot yeah. has to be the way it is. So they've got to be manually evacuated by shuttle. Yes. So we start with a uh, concert in 10 Forward, a, a uh, string uh, quartet, which Data is going to be playing in. Trivia, small fact, Miles O'Brien apparently plays the cello, which we never, ever, ever see again. <laughs> yeah, he's in the string quartet, as is a lady and someone who looks like a Vulcan. Yes. Uh, could be a Romulan, but, you know, I'm guessing it's a Vulcan. In the, and, at this time, yeah. Yeah. We have a, a bit of an on-the-nose, lantern-hanging conversation between Data and Crusher and Picard about leadership and the nature Data's nature of whether he can truly be creative or whether he just follows his programming and apes things. Uh, so that, that that is setting us up for the rest of the episode where we find out that Data can be creative. Yeah, specifically what Data does is he recommends to Crusher and Picard that maybe they want to come to the second performance where I'm not going to be here because I'm told my playing has no soul. And Crusher points out, don't criticize your performance in advance. (laughs) That's only that's going to undermine people's actual enjoyment of it. And it's like, yes, there is a square dance caller here in Southern California who did that for years. And it's like, no, dude, do not apologize and 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 play down expectations in that way. It will decrease people's actual enjoyment. You know, I actually have to have done that with podcasters in the past where I told them, you know, don't apologize in your first episode that I'm new at this. I don't know what I'm doing. It's probably not going to be as good. Don't don't apologize. Yeah. Don't ap- do, just do it. And then then get better. If you have to apologize, do it afterwards, not before. Right. Right. Uh, that That's that's a good a good thing. One interesting trivia fact: the the leader of the colony is this is this guy called Goshevin, mm-hmm. and he's played by I didn't write the guy's name down, but the the actor. What's interesting about Goshevin is Granger Hines uh, is is his name. Hmm. We never hear his voice in this whole episode because they dubbed him out with another uncredited voice actor. Really? Yeah, and now when I learned that fact, I'm like, that makes sense because. When I I remember watching this going saying there's something weird about the way this guy talks and it's because it's not his voice. Hmm. They after they re- recorded the episode the uh, producers decided that Granger Hines sounds too much like John Wayne, like he's too John Wayneish and they wanted hmm. a more neutral voice or something, which is really weird. <laughs> it's just hmm. a, 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 and and Granger Hines was offended enough, I think, at this at that point that he asked his name to be taken off of the credits. He he didn't want to be credited for the the role, which I don't blame him. I mean that I would be uh-huh. a little offended too. Uh, so if if you watch this and you and you find you feel like the the performance is a little odd, a little off, that might be why. So I just thought I'd mention that. Mm-hmm. So the the premise itself is you've got the reclusive Sheliak who who uh, haven't contacted humans in 100 years since their treaty, contact the Enterprise out of the blue, demanding colonists, you know, the humans be taken from the planet, and sets oh. up this impossible demand. 
Yeah, that. and they're they're also very they're xenophobic. They're racist, superior. I mean, they they think other races are inferior to them. They and that shows in the dialogue where they'll always begin their broadcasts by Federation creatures, right? You know, and they also though don't seem to be as smart as they could be because they should have filed this request. A, earlier, and B, with Federation Command, not some random ship patrolling the border. <laughs> right, right. That that could, probably cannot do anything about what you're asking for, unless except you have the brilliant you know, Picard who finds a yeah. solution. But uh, normally, they wouldn't be able to f- fix it. I do like the design of them when we get to see them. It's, it's, a, it's clearly a human actor, but in this bulky golden cloth suit with geometric uh, kind of a geometric grid on it and it does look i mean it's still humanoid ish but but it looks nicely alien without just being someone with extra bumps on their forehead in fact they really dig into this idea of alienness and and there's later on there's gonna be a conversation between troy and picard where troy tries to talk about picard should know this but they're really just explaining this to the audience yeah how remarkable it is that we have any kind of communication between alien species at all. And right. she uses the example of, you know, tea, Earl Grey, hot, w- the well, different words. Specifically, I, and I love this because of the linguistics involved, she holds up a cup of what looks like coffee, and she says, Sasmarith, and leaves him to guess what that means. And he guesses, cup, glass, liquid, clear, brown, hot, you know, and he, he yeah. doesn't know, but, you know, the the two of them come up with those options and and she says we conceptualize the universe in relatively the same way you know because of course she's half betazoid yeah but it makes the point just even if you know what someone is describing roughly Still, you yeah. don't know what they're saying about it right it's like i was i was on one of my science channels this morning a story came through about how they've now confirmed that bats visualize the world not in terms of space like how far away is that bug in in meters but in terms of time so like because of how their sonar works and they they found a really ingenious way to prove that this is how bats are conceptualizing the world but instead Uh of thinking that that insect i want to eat is nine feet away they'll think that insect i want to eat is nine milliseconds away huh interesting Right, which in a way that what this uh, ep- this little exchange does is show how improbable the universal translator is. By the way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but but I do like the fact that they try to do this, and because it's hard in a one hour less than an hour episode of of a science fiction TV series trying to get across the alienness of communication. I mean, what was that movie that was out recently, Arrival? Oh, right. That, uh-huh. This was what the whole movie was about. And so I like that they try at least to do that here kind of as much as they can within the limitations, this idea of a truly alien species. And we get that again at Darmok and Jalad and, and, and that Enemy sort of mine stuff. And... Right, right. We, we, they, they try it other times, uh, but uh, I, I, I appreciate that they did that here. Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't appreciate is what you pointed out, which is they make both the aliens and the humans completely irrational. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so when Data goes down to the planet, the colonists are just dumb. <laughs> right. I mean, it, 
the the Gauchevin is utterly dismissive of data when data data comes down and says there's this alien race you're on their planet they have legal title to this if you don't leave you're all dead and rather than asking follow-up questions like tell us about these aliens who are about to kill us all <laughs> right they they Gauchevin just utterly dismisses it and Fake then, news. <laughs> yeah. And 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 then you have this uh machine worshipper lady who is turned on by data. And, and and notice he's not turned on as a machine by her. She's turned on by him <laughs> as a machine. Right. And she's on data's side instantly. And then you have these waffling people in the middle who waffle irrationally as the plot needs. One they first they're leaning one way, then they're leaning the other, and they keep going back and forth, being indecisive. But it it, it it's just such paint by numbers writing. It is, and and part of what they're doing here, because they're playing with the idea of data as a commander, is the the lady's name is Ardrian, and as his love interest and as a computer worshiper in this episode, she's got to play the race card. And say, okay, maybe the reason that Goshevin, the leader, isn't taking you seriously is because you're an android. And it's like that's the and and they actually hint the, at in that direction a, a little bit. Yeah. But it, that's also irrational. I don't care if I'm talking to a device. If my iPhone activates and <laughs> I'm told that by a, a representative of the police that there is a dangerous criminal in my area and I need to take shelter, I'll take shelter. I'm not going to go, ha, foolish iPhone, what do you know? <laughs> now, to be fair, this could be very similar to the, the way they react. is very similar to how social media is in 2020, 2021. Well, <laughs> there, there's plenty of irrationality, people uh, re responding mm -hmm. to... You know the description yeah, of facts but, and that but stuff. That doesn't that doesn't make social media a fun, enjoyable viewing experience. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> In fact, it does the opposite. And and that's it's it's kind of interesting watching this episode now in the context of the of the time we're in as we record this because of that and to see, yes, that is so irrational. That is so dumb. You're dismissing, you know, the, what someone is saying not because. What they say can be disproven, but because it goes against your predetermined categories, your your desires for the way the world should work, as opposed to the way it actually does work. And in that sense, I get that. On the other hand, like you said, it just makes it. This guy's supposed to be a leader of a of a fifteen thousand person colony. Like this guy should be thrown out of the back of the out of the back of the bus so that the, everyone else can go on and survive because he's off, a terrible off, leader off the top of the aqueduct, <laughs> right? Which right. which he worships, by the way. We have these two technology worshippers. Ardrian worships computers like Data, and Goshevin worships his aqueduct. Yes, yeah. Uh, one of the things I liked is is so how Data right Data is destroying a false god at the end of the episode. Right, it's very Kirkian, by the way. In, in that, yes, we, we've seen we've seen that before. So the but the funny thing is, it's the computer destroying the false god, uh, which is not a very Kirkian thing. One thing I like is uh, how Riker, when he's trying to get like Data to do the do his job, so mm -hmm. Data is the only only one from the ship who can go down to the surface because of this radiation 
They're not sure why the, the colonists have survived. They must have figured out a way to survive the radiation. But nobody on the Enterprise can survive. Only Data can. Although maybe other alien, non-human or aliens. Or humans on the... in hazmat suits. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I, apparently this technology survives the, mm-hmm. down there. So anyway. So Riker won't let Data get away with saying, well, it's not working. Like he's like, no, Data, work the problem. Get it done. It, it, and yeah. it's kind of funny. He says to him at one point, Use that fancy positronic brain of yours and carry out your mission. It's like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm stuck, uh, which is, I, I like that, that he won't let him get away with it. Mm-hmm. And there are moments in management where you just have to say, just get this done. Yes. You know, I, I, I wish I could help you more, but I have other things I have to do right now. This is your task. Work it. Right, right. So, so that, was, that was good. Uh, another interesting aspect of the episode that I found was that Picard in this third season is so different from the Picard of the first season. And by going back and forth, I'm, I'm, it's it's highlighting that for me. He's much more relaxed and less strident than he would be in the first season in the face of this impossible situation. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I find that that development of the character, I think Picard changes almost more than anyone else mm-hmm. from first season to later on. Uh, in, and, I, and I think that's why he becomes such a, a, a much better character. Yeah, here he's only unreasonably stiff, not impossibly <laughs> stiff. He doesn't get angry. Like, you know, like in the first season he'd be he'd be ticked off at the Sheliak and at everyone on board. And this one he's like I do like that he goes to, like to to Jordy and uh uh O'Brien uh, and Wesley. Uh Brian, I kept saying Will think in my head, but yeah, Wesley and O'Brien, you know, hey, do this impossible thing, like make the transporters work even though they're not supposed to. I, I kind of like the fact that they that they don't ever actually get the transporters working. In fact, Jordy comes in at the end and goes, we can do it. It's going to take 25 years and a staff of 500, but we could do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, did, I did like we'll, that. that. We'll was, have that them was ready in time for the series Star Trek The Next Next Generation. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so th- that was, that was a, a pretty good thing, too. But I also solution- liked, even though that's really time filler, because yep. that's all they're doing is filling time with that subplot and right. giving the actors some lines so they'll get royalties for this episode. They, I like the way they do it because they're, they have these canisters that they're beaming. They're not beaming them down to the planet because they're doing this. And this actually doesn't make any sense. When they first start to test the canisters, they, yeah. beam, they, it, they appear to be beaming them down through this weird radiation onto the planet and back. And they come back all weird. And, mm-hmm. and, and that looks good. And I'm assuming there were like organics as well in those canisters because you need to transport not just crystalline matter, but organic matter as well. And this, so this is having these test canisters is a nice thing. But then they take off to go intercept a celiac ship and they continue the beaming experimenting process. And I'm going, how are you beaming? <laughs> You're not, you know, I, yeah. How are you beaming them through the weird radiation at this point? Yes, you're, they're they're very far away from the planet. So, yeah, are they simulating the radiation? Uh, yeah, yeah. That, Do they that have like a radiation work. chamber on the ship that they're using? Or <laughs> right, yeah. So, Data's eventual. Eventually, he gets the idea from Adrian to use reverse psychology on no. the people. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh, and this this is this is after. By the way, she's kissed him. Yes. And and he notices how weird and inappropriate the kiss is. Yeah, 
<laughs> but she then proposes this this reverse psychology thing to him. And I don't know about I, I, I don't I don't watch a lot of contemporary television. My impression is that reverse psychology does not get invoked that much in current television. But if, yeah. if you go back to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, this was a big trope on television. Oh, yeah. The, the reverse psychology. Oh, we need to use reverse psychology. We're going to, in essence, dare people to do something as a way of getting them to not do it or vice versa. And so this was being of the age I am, it's like, oh yeah, here's the reverse psychology trope. <laughs> and his his trope is they have this big meeting, and he demands to let himself be uh, heard uh, because are you so afraid that you you're afraid that you can't uh, withstand debate me debating me? So he talks, and he says, "I admire your courage in the face of your doom, your certain defeat." Your courage will be remembered and extolled. And then Adrian helpfully supplies from the side, by whom? Oh, that is true. No one will be left alive to remember. Oh, well. And actually, at least Goshevin goes, yeah, nice try. That was, uh, you must yeah. have a very low opinion of us to it, think we'd fall for that. Very badly written and acted, too. It's just <laughs> yeah. way stilted. It's what, very what, stiff. What, what I do like is that I like, I don't like that scene at all. But I like the fact that we're seeing Data being challenged and failing because Data has enormous Mary Sue potential. You know, yeah. if Data is handled wrong, he becomes Mary Sue. And this subverts that Mary Sue-ness by having him fail and acknowledge his failure and be humble about it. Yes, that is true. Also, I don't find, even though these humans are being irrational, I don't find it to be completely unrealistic because there are individuals who will be irrational in a situation like this. Back when Mount St. Helens blew up, there mm -hmm. were people in Washington who said, I've lived here on Mount St. Helens for nigh on to 400 years and no one's going to drive me off my land. And okay, fine. We're, the evacuation is stopping. We don't have time to get everybody out anymore. Here it comes. Boom. And they all died. And yeah. so there will be individuals like that, but we wouldn't find a we wouldn't find a whole planet like that. And and in fairness, they're not, but it's just handled so badly. Goshevin makes it you know says that he doesn't think it's as hopeless as Data says it is, you know. Right. But then we breeze past that. I'm like, so lay out the data, Data. <laughs> Show him why this is going to happen this way. Start giving him files on this alien race and what they've done before and how they're how they've known to be to behave in the past. Instead, we just get this paint by numbers writing where after Goshevin declares he doesn't think it's as hopeless as Data says it is, people just start siding with him automatically, even though they've been given no evidence. And it's. Is Goshevin like a totalitarian dictator? Does is he king? Like what? If you wanted to be more realistic, you'd have a faction of people like, okay, we're packing up and going, like like Mount St. Helens. You know, mm -hmm. most people left, some people stayed, and then if that was what you wanted to do, you could have a situation where most of the people, yep, we're packing up, we're going, and a handful of you standing behind. What will that do to the viability of a colony where 
Now, instead of having 15,000 people, you have a few hundred people who are going to stay behind. Can the colony survive with that? Like, that would have made some interesting drama. Yeah, it was like the trickle-flow-gush uh, strategy that the ATF <laughs> hostage negotiation team was trying to use with the Branch Davidians before the the hostage, hostage rescue team interfered and got them all killed. Right, right, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it feels like it, it ha- it, it ter- they turned it into the data versus Goshevin versus instead of like data trying to convince a large community of people and some people going and some people not and making an internal debate it was data versus Goshevin, and that I think it it was a simple story, but I think it was therefore a flawed story. Uh, so data finally figures out how to get through to Goshevin by showing him, look, I'm I'm one android with one phaser. I destroy the water pumping station, and now you have no water. And you know, you think of how much more, and you couldn't stop me. Now we've got hundreds of Sheliak who are even more powerfully armed. Do you think you're going to be able to stop them with your primitive uh, pea shooters? Uh, and and that's how he gets through to him, apparently. Picard figures out how to get through to the Sheliak by using the treaty, because they're a very legalistic society, apparently, using the treaty that they insist upon. And so the lesson we're supposed to be getting from this episode is leadership is figuring out what it takes to get the desired result from the people you need it from with the least amount of expense possible, and expense as in the least amount of expensive resources. I'm get, I mean, that's not a bad lead, lesson about leadership, but that's what we're supposed to be getting from this. Mm-hmm. There is an interesting moment. Uh, here's a little bit of a, you can only see this in high def that they didn't expect to be able to see back in the day when they made it. When they're when Picard and the others are going through the treaty on the screen, on the computer screen, they, they highlight some text, which is supposed to be the text. Here's what it actually says on the, on the, the Okudagram. Oh, yeah. We can do search and replace. Come to think about it, that's what the Sheliak want to do with the colony on the planet. This section deals with the right of each party to confer with the other in the event something screwy happens with the treaty. This is on screen. This mm-hmm. may take the form of normal FM spectrum communications, subspace FM communications, face-to-face meetings, telephone tag, messages in bottles, or any other watertight form of enclosure. Gossip, half-truths, outright lies, or face-to-face meetings. Interruption of treaty compliance shall not exceed one standard UFP solar year, except during the month of July. And it goes on from there. I just thought mm-hmm. that was hysterical. I had to write it down because it was so oh, funny. Oh, yeah. By the way, this treaty is supposed to be as, as to impress the audience with how monstrous this treaty is. There was like a team of le- Federation legal experts who worked on it, and it's half a million words long. And I'm <laughs> yes. going, if we had a treaty with aliens— I would want it to be at least half a million words long. I would want right. to know exactly how all of our interactions are allowed to go because they're aliens. <laughs> well, I mean, we've got treaties in, in, you know, on Earth between nations yeah, that are more that complicated that than that. Yeah, yeah, so that's not in particular. But especially if they think different than we do, I want our interactions spelled out in minute detail. Yes, exactly. And so, as you mentioned before, Picard's solution is third-party arbitration by a species that is currently in a hibernation cycle and won't be available for six months. So you can wait six months for arbitration, or give me my four weeks that I can get people off now. Yeah. And they they go for that. And that's how, uh, as we wrap things up, then we have this final scene with Ardrian and Data and this whole romantic connection thing. Mm -hmm. and. Which is, I think, supposed to call us back to when Data originally in the in Ten Forward talked about his 
lack of soul in his violin performance. And so we're supposed to be getting this idea, no matter how lifelike and human data is, he's still not human, which Mm -hmm. is actually a pretty decent message to remind the audience of because people get all, you know, there are others like measure of a man, which tell us that data is, is like a human, but this one emphasizes the gap that he, there is that uncanny Valley where he still is not going to be human. Yeah. So in this scene, he kisses her and, and she gets to talking about feelings and he points out that he has no feelings of any kind. Right, which is disturbing to her, and it's and you you wonder, is she actually having an epiphany about the irrationality of her attraction to computers, because they're not going to feel back for you, right. and he's just admitted he's not feeling anything. He's just not as into you as you think, <laughs> <laughs> and will never be about anybody, not until he gets his emotion chip. Ugh. Well. I was thinking about this because this it brings up some interesting thoughts about Picard season one mm-hmm. and Sutra and all of the data esque, uh, you know the the uh, Sung type androids, Sung type androids. Thank you, and all of that. And it it's in the interesting. Well, they try to walk. They try to walk over this. Like no, they really are like us, and they really can have these feelings. And they really can't. They're really just people like us. And you know, as we've talked about, they really. No matter what, how lifelike and human you make them, they're still not people. They're still yeah. just machines. Yeah. The, the, if they would need a biological substrate if they were going to be actual life forms. Right, right. Uh, so, so now not only is Data a toaster, Picard is a toaster too. <laughs> yes, spoilers <laughs> if you haven't seen Picard Season 1, but yes. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Uh, any other uh, notes on this episode? Yeah. So I thought it was nice. I thought Troy has a nice role in this. Very often, Troy is sidelined because they don't have good, clear limits on how her empathy works. Mm-hmm. You know, she can sometimes detect deception and sometimes not. So she's either present or mysteriously absent from scenes based on whether or not they need her to detect deception or not. <laughs> right. And that was always a mistake. And so I feel bad for um, for Marina Sirtis because they they marginalize her character so much because of how poorly thought out it is. But as an empath and as a, a ship's counselor, she is a natural person to, given that they don't have a professional diplomatic corps on staff, she's a natural person as an expert in psychology to have studied xenopsychology and mm-hmm. she would be the kind of person that that Picard would turn to to help him navigate the situation with the Sheliac. I think that's great. I love seeing her have this role. I think she does a good job with it. It is I would say probably one of the better parts of the episode because of how ridiculous the rest of the episode is. <laughs> we have the scene where Bad Boy Data blows up the aqueduct and apparently in all of their pumping stations along the aqueduct, they had explosive stores because they <laughs> blow up one after another in series for some reason. Uh, and then we do have a kind of okay speech from Data at the end where he's, after he blows up the aqueduct, where he points out that these Shelly Act that you want to fight, they won't even bother coming down here. 
they will attack you from orbit and you will die never seeing the faces of your killers. And You're it's right. like, okay, finally, Data gets something about human psychology in this episode. Because all they have to do is orbital bombardment or, you know, orbital phaser blasts or something. They don't even need to come down here to kill you. Right. And if I got that message from a voicemail machine from my local <laughs> police department, I would take that seriously. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the uh, the final little scene we get kind of touches back on the first one where we had the, you know, the concert and the question of Data's creativity. And Picard points out to Data that even though Data is combining the violin playing styles of Yasha Hafetz and someone named Bronken, Bronken, yeah, Bronken, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a real violinist or not. He was the one that made the decision to combine them. And I'm going, yes, just like the uh, the summation function in my Excel spreadsheet will combine different <laughs> things too. I don't think that's indication of creativity, but okay. <laughs> right right yeah in this case not... it is a little bit of an indication of creativity yeah 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 it's uh and and we do have data playing concerts uh, after this so it's you know interesting to that they, they continue to develop it I, I agree with you on troy i like the fact that eventually they figure out troy is going to be picard's diplomatic advisor mm -hmm. and when they use her that way that make that they should have had someone like that all along that should have been what she what she should have been all along and that that was a pretty good pretty good development oh. of the character yeah mm -hmm. excellent so i did promise some listener feedback you did pay up now time to pull the trigger and fulfill audience <laughs> expectations don't we're subvert off. them don't yes, subvert audience expectations we're paying off that uh that uh, dramatic beat that i started at the beginning of the episode i hung a lantern on it and now now here it is uh we had some feedback from uh our listener kelly brown on uh facebook she left this comment on our discussion of uh, the Discovery's first season, second half, which all takes place in the Mirror Universe, and uh, she says, um, I must admit, while I do think that Discovery gets better in the second half of the first season, I wasn't a fan of the big reveal of Lorca being from the Mirror Universe. Personally, I've never much liked Mirror Universe episodes of any Star Trek series. They make no sense at all. All the ships and the characters have the same names. The ships all look like the Prime Universe ships with a little paint job, a culture that that different than the Prime Universe would not produce ships that look like that with those names. Discovery would probably be named something like Ravager. Also, the people wouldn't be the same. There wouldn't probably not be a Michael Burnham because the circumstances of her parents' meeting wouldn't have happened. It's not a criticism of Discovery only. I have this issue with the entire concept of the Trek Mirror Universe. I do understand the point of Mirror Universe episodes. It's a way of highlighting our familiar characters by showing their opposites. Also, it's a way of giving the actors a chance to be the bad guys. As for Lorca, I wish that the big reveal wasn't that he was from the Mirror Universe. I think it would have been more interesting if he was Prime Lorca, but was changed from his experiences. So, Jimmy, what do you think about Mirror Universe episodes of Star Trek in general? Well, I think it would be interesting if this was Prime Lorca who had been changed. I don't mind him being Mirror Lorca, though. I think, like everything, Mirror Universe episodes, your mileage may vary on them. And my mileage varies on them. Some of them I I enjoy. Uh, I liked the Mirror Universe, the original Mirror Mirror from uh, from the original series. I liked that one. I also liked the two parter they did in Enterprise. Mm -hmm. I I the Deep Space Nine ones though were a very mixed bag for me. Uh, I was not as happy with some of those. Some of them I liked, 
like the one with the mirror Vedic Barile, but others I just really did not like. And so yeah. to me, they're, even the mirror universe ones are mixed back. In terms of the implausibilities, I, I totally agree that one of the problems with, or one of the issues with time travel fiction, which also, you know, you have parallel timelines like mirror universes, is that the, in the real world, the timeline is incredibly fragile. I, I won't go into details because family show, but right. if your parents had done anything different the night you were conceived, anything, there would be a different person here instead of you because different germ cells would have come together and there would be a totally different person here. So right. if if you changed history in the slightest, it would result in a vastly different timeline. And consequently, a lot of time travel fiction does not really acknowledge or deal with this. If you if you if you made any kind of a change in the past, it's going to have dramatic ripples throughout the rest of the timeline. And a lot of fiction doesn't deal with that. Having said that, here we have parallel universes and if there is a small number of parallel universes, the idea of one of them being this similar to the main universe we've been tracking would be astonishingly small and implausible. On the other hand, if there are a very large number of parallel universes, then there would be ones that are, uh, that are very similar or even identical to the prime one. This is something that uh, philosophers talk about in recent uh, decades in philosophy. Parallel universe discourse ha or possible universe discourse has become a way of talking about, for example, probability theory and how to, mm -hmm. how to, how to analyze certain philosophical problems. And so you can postulate an infinite number of possible universes. And then the part of the, one of the questions becomes how can you describe the relationships between these? And one way of describing relationships between possible universes is that the universes that have more similarities can be described as being closer to each other in possible universe imaginary space. And right. so here, in if, if we have a very large or infinite number of possible universes in, in, the, in the Trek multiverse, then actually, based on some ways of conceptualizing this, you, especially if there's an infinite number, you would find a situation somewhere in this infinite multiverse where you have a prime Star Trek-like universe immediately adjacent to a mirror-like uh, Star Trek universe. It wouldn't be common to run across this, but there would be places in the infinite multiverse where you have a proximity of those two things just randomly. Right. And we would just happen to be at one of those locations. Now, they haven't pointed all that out on the show, but since it's conceptually possible, I can kind of give it to them. But yeah. that, that's independent of how well handled are the episodes, and, and sometimes I don't think they're handled particularly well. I'll be interested to see, uh, given what we saw at the end of Discovery Season, what was that, three? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the 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 stuff about emperor giorgio there what we will see going forward especially in the forthcoming the promised section 31 series that features her 
and some of the stuff that came up regarding Mirror Universe uh, stuff at the end of that uh, se- season. Yeah, I know one thing that I would do if I was a writer on the Section 31 show is I would have the Mirror Universe, for one reason or another, try to get her back. Either mm. bring her back or kill her or you tap her as a resource or something. I would have the folks from back home come calling one way or another. Ooh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be... Because it's an obvious be natural way to exploit the character's backstory. Yeah, def- definitely. Pe- people's past returns to haunt them. <laughs> well, Kelly, thank you for the feedback. That is a very interesting discussion and uh, probably one we should have again when, you know, when we come up against these Mirror Universe episodes and bring this up again, uh, because uh, that, that <laughs> we'll be talking a lot about the Mirror Universe. They, they like the Mirror Universe on track. All right, let's wrap things up. I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Katie, Doyle and Dan, John S., Wojciech D., and Rebecca S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of this next-gen episode, The Ensigns of Command? You can give us some feedback by commenting at sqpn.com slash trek or at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, The Visitor. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for sharing with me the secrets of Star Trek. Thanks, Tom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, this is just a thing, and things can be replaced. Lives cannot. Unless your data. <laughs>